0: Join me in the prayer for illumination. Gracious God, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in ways of life eternal. Through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Scripture today is Mark. Chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals, it is impossible, but, for, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. May God edge his blessing to our reading and hearing of this is holy word.
1: So we're starting a series that's entitled The Generosity Challenge. Today we start with Born to be Generous. Which is what I really think we are. I I believe we are born, we are hardwired to be generous. Um, I I believe that uh, that little bit of uh, caring and connection that happens for you when you drive past the lemonade stand—that is uh, wired in us, because you know that it's going to be a tiny cup, and you know that there's either going to be no ice or a chunk of ice. And you know that it's gonna be either oversweet or, or not sweet enough. And, and the big problem is, is that lemonade stand is not gonna take your swipe, right? <laughs> you know, but we're born to be generous, we stop anyways, right? And we, we leave the $10 bill or the $5 bill in there anyways because generosity is something that we have been wired to be. Now you can say a lot of uh, different reasons why we are wired to be generous. Uh, You can talk about psychology or uh, brain science, but I'm going to tell you the reason why we are wired to be generous is because the one who created us is generous. And so I want to talk some more about this born to be generous. Now it is true that this is the beginning of our stewardship campaign, but please don't keep that, uh, please don't let that keep you from, from showing up. Right. Um, I've noticed that over the years of ministry, that stewardship campaigns tend to do really horrible with attendance. But, but you're going to come back next week, right? Now, um, many of you are familiar that uh, about two weeks ago, my uh, father died. Um, I always am reminded, even before I was a preacher, uh, my dad would say, um, after the stewardship campaign at our home church, he'd say, now, Peter. Anytime a preacher ever talks about money, you should hold on to your wallet, right? Oh, no laughter there. All right. Um, I, <laughs> y- y'all are a very uh, reflective group at this point. So I, I want to, um, sadly enough, I'm going to keep going after this. I'm going to go uh, open with a joke because I think when, when we uh, joke about things, we are telling truth and we are also Um, uh, telling absurdity, right? That the funny thing about a joke is that it is something that would never happen, but yet we find the humor in if it did happen. Um, One of my jokes that I like around stewardship season um, is the story of a strong man at a circus. Now, what I think is really funny about that opener is that there's going to come a time in about 20 or 30 years where nobody will remember what a circus is. But anyways, (laughs) a strong man at a circus at a sideshow, right? And he is doing his usual strong man thing. He is bending iron and he is wowing the crowd. And he gets to a point and he says, "Um, I'm going to do a feat here next that if you are able to do better than I, I can, I will give you $200. So the crowd's paying attention, and he pulls out a lemon, and he begins to squeeze all the juice out of the lemon. And it's a copious amount of lemon juice here in the container. And he says, "Um, if any of you can come up and squeeze just one more drop out of this lemon, I'll give you $200. And the whole tent is quiet until there's this very frail voice in the back that says, I will. And this uh, elderly woman begins walking up with her, with her walker coming up to the front, um, You know, much dwarfed by the strong man. And she takes that lemon and she begins to squeeze it. And not only did she get a drop out of it, but she got a good six more ounces out of that thing. And the strong man paid her the $200, but then in private asked, How in the world? did you get more lemon juice out of that lemon? What is your, I like this, technique at increasing your strength? And the sweet little old woman said, oh, that's nothing. I've been the treasurer at my church for 42 years. (laughs) You know, what's really funny about that is the, it's the absurdity right? The absurdity of uh, an elderly man or woman besting a strong man in a circus. But the little bit of truth that's in there is that we've been part, uh, you know, our, our faith and our discipleship has been all about taking small gifts and multiplying them. I mean, from the time in which Jesus fed the 5,000 with the the gift of the small boy's lunch, we have watched uh, decade after decade, season after season, where the gifts that are given because of our generosity are multiplied and expanded and have an impact all over our community. I believe that we're born to be generous. I, I believe that we are hardwired for it. One of the truths of generosity is that when we give, we receive, but when we grasp, we lose. That's a strange paradox of generosity. I mean, how many times have you gone on a mission trip and you have received more than you gave? I think that's the motto for UM Army. No laughter, okay. Um, and how many times when we have um, you know, circled the wagon because of insecurity about the future, that we have not given what we thought should be given to others, that our generosity has been curtailed by, um, by taxes or by the economy um, or by the bad showing of Black Friday sales. And at the end of the day, we re- regretted not being more generous because we feel alive when we're generous. Our scripture passage today is a great treatment of a discussion about uh, what's important and uh, how best to live our lives. Uh, in this particular passage, Mark, um, there, uh, you have the story of a rich young ruler uh, who runs to Jesus and kneels in front of him and asks him a question, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? Now what's fascinating about that beginning of the the, the rich young ruler is that Mark does not describe uh, the rich young ruler um, as rich or a ruler. That's Matthew on one side and Luke on the others, but we kind of combine these stories together. So this young man who has many possessions comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to stop for a moment. Let's think about that question. The, the, um, The young man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life. My guess is that this man with many possessions is very familiar with inheritance laws. That it might be that his seed of beginning to become affluent came because he inherited something from his father, that he would be familiar with inheritance because that would be the way that his wealth would be conveyed to his children. And so he would know that in the Old Testament law that um, the firstborn son gets a double portion and the rest of the brothers get a single portion. And that if there are sons, then daughters probably don't get anything. But if there's no sons, then daughters can receive an inheritance as well. That I imagine because of the study and intentness of this young man to ask Jesus, the rabbi, how might he inherit eternal life? It might be true that he knows in the Old Testament that the word, the verb that's used in that relationship between God and believers around eternal salvation is often inherit. This inheritance is important to him. In fact, it's so important to him that that Jesus, uh, we get a feeling word for Jesus out of Mark, which is not very common. Mark says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. This was after Jesus runs down the usual suspects for things that you should do to inherit eternal life. He talks about um, the commandments. If you notice, he talks about the fifth through tenth commandments, right? Do you remember those? Do you you remember from your um, vacation Bible school days and your confirmation days that um, uh, the commandments one through five are about our relationship with God and commandments uh, five through 10 have to do with our treatment of our neighbor? Does that, anybody, can I get an amen from somebody? Isn't it interesting that Jesus asks about five through 10 but doesn't ask about one through four? Is that because Jesus assumes that he did those things correctly? Or is it just a gentleman's agreement? that because clearly you have worshiped other things and therefore have a lot of possessions, we're just going to talk about these other ones. So after saying that he had followed all of the commandments that he had done what was expected of him, you know, we get that phrase, Jesus uh, looked at him and loved him, um, and then tells him, there's one more thing that you must do. Uh, you must go sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me, and take up your cross. Now we get another feeling word here after this. The the man was shocked and grieved and went away sad. What an interesting juxtaposition of feeling words. Because of this man's um, desire to inherit eternal salvation, Jesus looks at him and loves him. But because the call to discipleship is so uniquely difficult, the man goes away shocked and grieved. Now, I think it's interesting that in this particular call to discipleship, um, that there is a contrasting with other calls to discipleship in the Gospels as well. I mean, let's be honest, not everybody was asked to sell their possessions and give them to the poor. There's no record of Jesus requiring the fishermen to sell their boats or Simon and Andrew um, couldn't keep their house in Capernaum, or Martha and Mary, who also owned a house, they kept it. There's no mention of Levi, the tax collector, giving up his ill-gotten gains, although I think Levi probably would. There were several wealthy people that became disciples without divesting themselves of their wealth. Why then should Jesus demand such a sacrifice from this young man? There are a couple of possibilities here. I have to be honest, my hopeful possibility is that there's a different call to discipleship for all of us. And so because I'm not a rich young ruler or lawyer, I get to keep my stuff, which is probably not true. But maybe it's the reality that Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and sees what is that one thing that is the stumbling block between him and inheriting eternal life. And so he names it right there in front of him. Now, it may be true that we are not rich young rulers. We may not have accumulated many possessions. We may not be the person that wants to inherit eternal life, and the one stumbling block is that. But I think we can all trust that our call to discipleship will be just as difficult. And the hope is that we might respond to Jesus, not with shock and grief, but with a willingness to trust God's grace. It is interesting uh, that Jesus expects a level of obedience and loyalty that goes beyond that which the ancient Near East culture would have required. In a Middle Eastern culture, the two most important uh, loyalties, the two unassailable loyalties, would have been um, the uh, pledge to care for home and the pledge to, I'm sorry, the pledge to care for family and the pledge to care for village or community. But Jesus asks, for loyalty and obedience above that, a challenging place. And so the disciples ask, well, Jesus, who can make it into heaven if not, you know, this man? And I love that Jesus replies, children, He calls the disciples children. Now, you might think he's just being demeaning, but no, read the passage a little bit before that, and we get the story of, um, let the little children come to me, for such as this is the kingdom of heaven. There's a clue here to why Jesus says to the disciples, children, because he wants them to remember that even though they thought the man who had access and power and knowledge about scripture wasn't going to make it through, To the kingdom of heaven. But children who had no access and no power, and often in that culture were illiterate, theirs would be the kingdom of heaven. It's an interesting piece there. And so Jesus goes on to say that it'll be easier for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And though I would love to like tell you about a particular gate in Jerusalem that was discovered by archaeologists that was called the eye of the needle and it required a camel that was overburdened with goods to kneel, be unburdened, and then could crawl through because the imagery of all of us crawling to Jerusalem without our goods is powerful. But archaeologists haven't necessarily found that gate just yet. (laughs) It, It is interesting, isn't it, that when we think about generosity Generosity is, I think, so much more powerful, so so much more beautiful than required. Oftentimes people ask when they join the church, am I required to tithe? Well, you're required to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That that is your spiritual act of worship. But if you want to just go with tithing, that's fine too. (laughs) um, When required, generosity doesn't feel like it's generosity. Think about all the times and places and spaces where you've benefited from someone else's generosity, where you've given generosity. It is those times in which we feel most alive. We are most real. It is those moments when we are not generous, when we are captured by our insecurities, when we are dominated by the unknown of the future, that we are not so much who we were called to be over the course of the next 28 days, we're going to uh, live into um, the, the uh, generosity challenge. Uh, there are books in the Narthex and there are a few Sunday school classes that are studying the book. Um, if you're interested in the book, you can find it on the For This Week on the back of that bulletin. Um, there's also a couple of other books that I think are really helpful Um, Over the next uh, uh, 28 days, we'll have an opportunity first to um, analyze and think about our own generosity and then be challenged to think about new and different ways of generosity because I want you to know for sure that uh, stewardship campaigns are not about lights and air conditioning and capital investments. Stewardship is really about being generous with what we have and having a, a heart of generosity being willing to give because you know the one that created you gave. Now, um, I'd love to close with a a particular uh, story, a a story about uh, the 2006 Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction. Uh, Her name is Geraldine Brooks. Uh, Geraldine um, received the Pulitzer Prize in 2006 for her novel March. And she attests to her love for books that they were nurtured by a woman named Althea Glasby. Now, um, Geraldine's grandfather had mentioned to Miss Glasby when Geraldine was very, very young that his granddaughter loved to read. And from that day forward, Uh, Every time there was a gift-giving opportunity, so Christmas and um, uh, birthdays and any other time in which a gift might be given, there was a parcel that would show up on Geraldine's uh, front porch. And even as a young child, she remembers opening these parcels, these packages, and finding in there first edition books of some of the greatest literature that was coming out. And she would open up the front cover and there in a beautiful flowing script would say, for you, Geraldine, from Ms. Glasby. What's curious about this is that Geraldine never met Ms. Glasby in person in her whole life, but she has bookshelves of bookshelves of books. And she says when she received the Pulitzer Prize for fiction that it was Miss Glasby that gave her the gifts out of her generosity, for her to have a life of books. And when asked what uh, Geraldine would be willing to do to say thank you to Miss Glasby if she were still alive, she says, I'd give her a first edition of this Pulitzer Prize winning book because her generosity made it possible for me to love Words. What's challenging about uh, generosity is that we don't often know what the results of that generosity might be. It is a, a stone into the pond and the uh, ripples come out from there and we may not be able to track or count or um, measure all the outcomes, but you and I are both, we are productions of others' generosity. Generosity that we are who we are because people noticed and gave, that we are who we are because people cared and wanted to see us succeed. It doesn't always have to be a lemonade stand. It could be so many other things that lead to the generosity that makes our lives possible. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about, not about tithing and budgets and those types of business-oriented things. Because at the end of the day, Jesus will multiply our gifts, even if it takes an elderly woman on a walker squeezing lemon out of a lemon juice, right? Instead, we're going to talk about generosity. We're going to think together how this church has been generous to you. We're going to think together how this church can be generous to our community. And we're going to live into that new reality of not just being born to be generous, but living it out as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.